I mean, hope doesn't exist if you're totally certain about stuff. Right? You don't hope for things you're totally certain of. I mean, are you ever justified in hoping is an important philosophical question, I think. When Tom Wyman started thinking about whether he wanted to become a father, he felt some hesitation. The stakes for women and men are often so different, and Tom was worried about things like political instability where he lived in the UK. He thought about the rocky academic job market. He felt the increasing threat of climate change, not to mention all the little daily ways that having a child would change his life. And then a global pandemic shook things up even more. He worked through his worries by writing a book called Infinitely Full of Hope, Fatherhood and Future in an Age of Crisis and Disaster. He wrestled with the philosophical questions, what can I know, what should I do, and what should I hope for? And it was that last one that haunted him. What can I hope for? Tom Wyman joins us to talk about that in this episode of Fireside with Blair Hodges. Tom Wyman, thanks for joining me today at Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's great to meet you. Hello. We're talking about a book that you wrote called Infinitely Full of Hope, Fatherhood and the Future in an Age of Crisis and Disaster. And I saw this book during COVID and had to pick mm. up a copy of it, I think for obvious reasons. Yeah. That seems very relevant right now. Yeah. So, But you're a philosopher, mm -hmm. and you begin the book by talking a little bit about philosophy and Immanuel Kant in particular, where he kind of said philosophy was focused on these questions. What can I know? What should I do and what should I hope for? Yeah. And as a philosopher, you say that you've seen a lot of focus on the first two questions. What can I know and what ought I to do? Yeah. But not as much on the third one. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think generally speaking, philosophers like to, I mean, or maybe not like to, but like just there's sort of incentives within the academy to sort of say things you can at least claim some sort of certainty about. So what can I know? What should I do? Those sort of things you can at least pretend to give definite answers to was what can I hope for? I mean, Kant's answer to that question is very religiously inflected. So perhaps you can give definite answers to it in like a, I'm not going to say like a theology, in like a divinity department. If you're trained to be a priest, you can kind of have a definite yeah. answer to it. But if you're a philosopher, you can't really have a definite answer to it. And so, yeah, there's a kind of contingency to hope and a kind of uncertainty to hope that I think perhaps puts philosophers off. Yeah. You also said that philosophy for you kind of began in wonder yeah. and then it continues in pedantry. There, talk a little <laughs> bit about your experience of philosophy in the academy. Yeah, that's sort of, uh, when you teach when you teach a lot of philosophy courses, you're, certainly in the UK, my experience, is that I'm from the UK, it's, your list doesn't maybe able to tell. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when you're from the UK, most philosophy undergraduates start out kind of, it, the only philosophy they might have been exposed to at school is uh, what well, we have A-levels. So we don't have like, we have high school, but then you go on something called sixth form, which is when you're like 16 to 18. You do these things called A-levels. And that's the first time you might have done philosophy. It's like optional and most places don't even do it. And what they have on that course, one of the things they have on that course is Sartre. And, some, and lots of people who go on to do philosophy at university do that. And think philosophy is all going to be like Sartre. Uh, again, like he wrote that book Nausea, basically, which is yeah. just very, very sad. Yeah, maybe like Nausea, like it's kind of like intersections of like thought and literature and like, you know, philosophy is about like hanging out and looking cool. And you get to university, <laughs> and that's what they think philosophy is. And they get to university and they, and they realize that actually it's like, it's a bunch of guys going like, how, how do names work? So what, what's with that? <laughs> <laughs> like, 
why are there numbers? And like, it's not really like the same as what they imagine it to be. And it becomes like, you know, I, to be honest, actually, I don't know if necessarily the typical undergraduate things it's all going to be out, hanging out, looking cool, has kind of wonder. But um, I think there's a certain sort of undergraduate anyway who would enter in being like, you know, sincerely asking philosophical questions. Like you go through your undergraduate course and you realize this is what philosophy is, it's wonderful. You get asked these kind of questions. And then you get to kind of like, you know, you've done your graduate studies in the academy. In order to get any of your thoughts about these questions out, you have to go through peer review in, you know, academic journals and someone kind of skim reads it and go, yeah, but why is it something totally different? You can't get published. And I mean, even more sort of like refined, pedantic stuff tends to rise to the top through that process. And yet you chose to become a philosopher. Yeah. So like, how did you make it through this gauntlet of saying like, I want to make this my professional life? Total, I'm, I'm going to be honest, Blair, it's just total naive obliviousness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never really thought about it, I suppose. I mean, you know, Lord knows there's times where I thought, I thought, you know, I have two children, I think, you know what, maybe I could make a lot more money if I did something, if I chose to do something else. <laughs> yeah. But actually, I couldn't have done because, you know, just study philosophy just almost by chance realized I applied to go to university to study something else and I hated it in my first week and I just picked doing philosophy out like you know what could I switch to feel like a panic and then I sort of yeah. grew, grew to love it and so I just do like graduate study in it obviously I did like a master you, you just you, you, certainly in the UK you don't just go into like grad school and do a PhD you do an MA separately to a PhD so I did a master's and then like had a year out and you know I tried to get a job I couldn't and so I, then I got funding to do a PhD and I sort of just got suckered into it and just it's always actually been financially incentivized me to remain within the academy yeah uh, yeah it's almost like to get that phd was almost jo a job because it was a job i got funny to do yeah and it was the best option i had I and mean, then there's not really been a time you know again i mean when i wrote the book actually it was kind of i didn't have an academic job it's like the only period in the last since 2007 when i haven't been associated with university either as a student or a member of staff and i did kind of wrote a book in a kind of anti-academy kind of mode thinking hey i'm out of the academy i can just write however i want i don't have a future anyway so i can just, just Right, according to my own norms now. And yeah. I can tell, like, your book doesn't read like a typical philosophy book. It's, I think it's a bit more approachable and more conversational and I think more personal too. And there are some philosophers that write in that mode, but it did seem like you were able to create a book that had, that carried your own voice and that just really said things you really wanted to say without having to worry too much about, you know, whether it was going to fit into an academic niche or not. Yeah. And I think that's how I, you know, again, like, as I say, like, just blind obliviousness, like, I, maybe I would have benefited from being more calculated about how I approach pr writing or <laughs> research or anything, but that's no, just not my novel type of personality I have, to be honest. I just okay. can't do it. But this was, this book was certainly the product of just like, I can do what I like. And this is what I wanted to do. And it was like, part of it was obviously having a child and part of it was, you know, I was imagining, at the time I thought like, I, I'm never going to get another academic job. I'm never going to do anything in philosophy again. So I'm going to have to kind of collate all of the philosophy I've ever done into this work. I did my PhD on Adorno, who comes up book quite a lot and so i was thinking like how do yeah, i philosophy adorno right yeah yeah and so how do i uh how do i kind of combine like frankfurt school critical theory and aristotle and philosophy of political action and all that sort of stuff into into a book I think it's fair to say that like philosophy itself, just as a practice is sort of a perpetual exercise of failure. Like we yeah. philosophers haven't solved anything. We haven't resolved anything, but it's the kind of failure that I think is really worthwhile because it's, it's driven by an attempt to know it's yeah. driven by an attempt to feel and to hope and all of the things, you know, the three things that, that can't mentioned. So it may be an exercise in failure, but I think it's a really worthwhile one. And, and I think your book kind of shows that. Yeah, I think my book is a very worthwhile failure. I'd recommend it to anyone as a worthwhile failure. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Well, and, and it opens up with this really lovely journal entry. This is a letter that you wrote yeah. to your future child. This yes. is how you open the book. And you wrote it when you first saw the ultrasound. You, yeah. you knew that uh, your wife was pregnant and you t- and you wrote it to this little clump of tissue and you said, you're the best thing I've ever seen. And then, then you kind of disclose to the clump, you say... <laughs> You raise a lot of philosophical questions, a problem for me. Yeah. Whether it was right or good, given how the world is right now, to make you happen, basically. Yeah. And that was before COVID happened. Yes, yeah, so I was, I was uh, yeah, I was the start of 2019. So, yeah, it was before COVID happened. Yeah. And what were you thinking at that time? I mean, the letter's really, it's really beautiful, but it, it raises that real problem that I think a lot of people wrestle with right now, which is like, is it a good idea to have kids? Yeah. And I mean, I was thinking, like, you know, I'm poor. I don't have a date like securing income. I was thinking about climate change. I was thinking about, I mean, you know, I don't know how much you or your listeners know about the UK, but we're managed, but the government is, is for, long, for a long time been very poor, almost like be very kind of almost intent on destroying the country in a way where it's always baffling, really. It's like watching some sort of malicious clowns sort of just stomp on your face. And yeah, I'm sort of just wondering like, you know, who would bring a child into that? And obviously it was me and my partner. If that, uh, you can also call her my wife. That's fine. I call her my wife all the time. We're not technically married, but in it, whatever. We actually were engaged to get married, and then her due date turned out to be the day for where we scheduled for wedding for. So we didn't get married because <laughs> I know. Now we're like so far into it that I can't edit that out. No, so. yeah, but it's fine. We'll it's fine. But she's my wife. She's my partner. She's her. It, it doesn't matter. Might as well be. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and we've got two children now. Yeah. So I was just sort of thinking, like, you know, because you know, I wanted we, we wanted this child. We wanted you know to be able to give him a good enough life. And we sort of just we were just worrying. I was worrying. She was worrying. Like, can we do this both in terms of like our own personal situation and also our own you know also kind of a broader political situation as so that did kind of get me starting off writing about hope you know again if you knew hope for something you're kind of casting yourself off into a sort of a void you don't i mean hope doesn't exist if you're totally certain about stuff you don't hope for things you're totally certain of i mean are you ever justified in hoping is an important philosophical question i think and that's and you were dealing yeah. with it on a personal level yeah. but then you also in the book you point out that this is a question that people have and there are arguments against having kids right now. Yeah. Let's talk about a few of those to begin, like uh, Schopenhauer, for example. Yeah. He kind of said that human existence has the character of contracted debt for a person. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You said like, there are arguments against having kids right now. I mean, he went to Schopenhauer, so he was making about like 1830. Absolutely. I mean, his his work sort of feels like very relevant now because obviously we think... We are autonomous and we can decide. It's certainly nowadays we think we can kind of decide how to live and we can decide how to live in a way that's potentially good, right? We sort of choose to do things for the good and determine what a good life is for ourselves. And Schopenhauer kind of just thinks that's just an illusion. So he thinks that in reality, what we are is we have a blind puppet of this thing he calls the will, right? So the will is what's ultimately real. And everything, I mean, every all life, including human life, is just kind of... Um, manifestation of the will. And so, in fact, our desires, if you think are our own, that we are inclined to think irrational, are actually just the will trying to perpetuate itself. And the will perpetuates itself through, you know, sexual reproduction, basically. It sort of reminds me of Dawkins' selfish gene, but instead of the will, it would just be like the I mean, genome or like the DNA is just like driven to yeah. reproduce. And so we're just this like unfortunate side effect of all that. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, Schopenhauer was someone who was, I mean, certainly an influence on Freudian psychoanalysis. I mean, he was an influence on Darwinist ideas about how the species perpetuates. I'm not, I couldn't say 
for sure he was an influence Darwin himself, but I think he certainly tacitly an influence on people like Dawkins. So yeah, I mean, so that's not a coincidence, but it kind of sounds that way. And, you know, the, the kind of Dawkins Darwinist idea is that we're like the blind puppets of our genes, but I mean, Dawkins doesn't kind of think that's morally bad. As far as I know, he kind of thinks yeah. it's sort of morally neutral. Yeah, I think, Sch- I think that's right. Yeah. Schopenhauer kind of thinks it's kind of morally bad, right? Because he thinks that existence is characterized by pain. Because even though we have all these illusions about ourselves, these are illusions we've sort of created in order to cope with the fact that existence is suffering. Even though we're rationally driven to perpetuate the species or perpetuate the will, what we actually experience as individuals is suffering. So if Schopenhauer have a correct response to that is to try and kill our desires. So he's kind of got an almost sort of Buddhist kind of attitude yeah. to existence. Yeah, like suffering is rooted in desire, so yeah. get rid of desire and then there's then you won't suffer. Yeah, exactly. So... And did he succeed? Did Schopenhauer, <laughs> did he pull it off? I mean, he, he never he didn't have kids. So in that sense, he succeeded. But I don't think he actually pulled it off because I don't think he ever felt, from what I know about his life, I don't think he ever felt happy personally. It reminds me of David Benatar, another person that you refer to, who basically said that like the absence of pain is preferable to the presence of pleasure. No joy or goodness could ever outweigh the fact that pain exists is kind of his calculus. Yeah, so he's like a contemporary South African philosopher who argues for yeah antinatalism so he thinks that creating new life is morally bad and that's because he thinks existence is characterized primarily by suffering so yeah benatar i just don't buy his instinct that like you know i, I just don't actually buy that pain outweighs pleasure like i think pleasure outweighs pain like i can give you an example like in the last week i've had sort of horrible kind of mouth ulcers We've been recovering from a kind of respiratory illness, which has been delaying recording this podcast. Yeah, I had some mouth ulcers yeah. when I had shingles, so I've I've experienced that. It's pretty painful. Yeah, it's really painful. And they've sort of I've had them over the past week, and they've been you know dominant kind of, sort of feature of my sort of like affect in the world for like the past week. Yeah, they've gone away today, and I've just forgotten about them. I don't remember them really. Like I don't think about them anymore. And I'm happy. I'm happy to be you know, doing things that don't involve having mouth ulcers. I just don't. I think I think Benatar's sort of uh, arguments follow from this, this intuition he has that sort of you're always going to remember pain more than you remember pleasure. They just don't get that at all. It doesn't connect with me as much on that level. Where where I'm tempted by it is the idea that like when I think about, I have children, yeah. I have two children, and when I think about the fact that they experience pain, it's really painful as a parent to see them experience pain and yeah. to think about the fact that they're going to, if they live and if they don't, that's its own kind of pain and suffering. But if they do, they'll experience heartbreak that's and they'll experience confusion <laughs> and loss. And that's hard as a parent to face like I basically kicked that process off for them that they're going to face a lot of sorrow yeah but you also made it so they can experience pleasure, right? And you give them pleasures. Like, you know, you get, you can show them things that they like. Or you can, like, you know, giving a child, like, a date, you know, not like a romantic, like a, like a fruit, a date, if for the first time mm-hmm. and seeing their face, like, light up or, like, you know, just doing, like, just silly things with them. Like, my daughter, who's uh, just about to turn one, turns one, like, in a couple of days' time. She just learned to roar. So her brother roars a lot because he does dinosaurs. <laughs> and uh, she just learned to roar and just feel how proud she is. Like she can't even talk, but you can see <laughs> yeah. how proud she is. How, she could roar. Like it's wonderful. And I hope that simple, yeah, I hope that simple stuff outweighs. And I'll say, even for myself, if something were to happen to my kids, it would be devastating, but mm. I would rather have had the love and the connection with them yeah. that costs that devastation than to not have had it. That's how I personally feel about that. Yeah. I mean, my parents lost a child just you know, before I was born, which I talk about a bit in my book. My older brother died before I, I was born. And I think they talk about him in sort of those ways. Like he died in his belfry. And yeah, I mean, like, obviously it's sort of devastating. And they, you know, when they talk, but normally the memories they share of him are just happy memories. 
like the things they remember aren't him being sick, but are my, my dad's favorite memory of him is when he took, like, accidentally took some sips of my dad's beer when they were out somewhere and then spent the whole time of the car home <laughs> hugging my sister. Who was then like kind of one year old, like you know, just being her, sort of you know, just just absolutely. So I mean, those are things they remember of him. They don't, they don't know, you know, they obviously also remember other things, but they, the things that they sort of, yeah. But again, that's I guess that's you know, obviously it, it does terrify me over time, like before for my children, right? Uh, something horrible happened to them, but like, yeah, you you do, you will still have, even if that does happen. Yeah, there is the you do have to remember that they still have given the world some joy. Yeah. I think. I mean, I can't really talk to that because obviously, like, it hasn't happened. And Lord knows I hope it never will. But yeah, I mean, yeah that's, I mean, that's another thing I talk about in the book. Like, you do, by having children, you expose yourself to that, the possibility of, like, the worst pain you could ever possibly know, I think. And you also mentioned climate change, too. So this is another yeah. reason some people would say it's not a morally good decision to have children is because it it could contribute to a rising global crisis. What are some what are people saying about that? I think there's a couple of things. I mean, so firstly, like there is the kind of argument that like basically climate change is going to lead to a world that's so bad, it's just not worth living in. So it's kind of almost like an act of cruelty to bring our children into that world. I mean, that sort of relates, I think, to the sort of, I mean, what we've just been talking about, like, if having children is just going to open up either yourself or them to different kinds of suffering, then it wouldn't be worth it. I mean, the other argument is the kind of almost sort of carbon footprint argument, but, you know, the thing we need right now is to reduce our carbon emissions as much as possible, right? We're in a kind of to almost carbon emergency. So, and, and the number one way that you can guarantee you're going to reduce your emissions by not creating more human beings to emit carbon. Mm-hmm. So you have a moral duty to either, either. I mean, some people would say you have a moral duty to not have any children. Some people would say you have more duty to limit the amount of children you have. So, uh, I mean, the way it's often reported is like, you know, taking a domestic flight or something is going to emit a certain amount of carbon, which you could not emit by taking get of a train, right? But having a child or is going to then emit a certain amount of carbon, which you could also, you could, you know, not emit by not having the child, basically. I mean, I certainly at that end of the argument, I think it's kind of silly because a child is not like a flight, you know, <laughs> a child makes their own choices about what they do and what they it. Like if we start getting into hypotheticals about what actions our child is likely to take, I mean, you know, obviously, I think you basically just end up, what we have is duties to educate our children and to, you know, in a way, give us our children the opportunity to to be better than we are. So it might be true that it's morally bad to bring children into the world if they're definitely going to do morally bad things. And, you know, you could say emitting carbon is definitely a morally bad thing, but then you might also want to say, well, the way to deal with that is to attempt to construct a world in which we have a better kind of more sustainable relationship the environment and we need to have kids to teach to do that yes too. exactly this so, can get dark yeah. pretty quick though like it can get pretty dark in terms of people saying well i mean if you're going to apply that to kids why not apply it to yourself like you're right now emitting carbon mm. and, and i think there perhaps have been some people who have said that there's some sort of moral goodness in suicide even to say you know it's interesting so i haven't actually encountered that in a philosophy paper i, I, I so that's interesting i mean that is a kind of extension of the argument right you, you i mean you're right like if you shouldn't have kids because they're going to make carbon then yeah i mean if it's all completely morally bad to to make carbon you should do everything that you need to in order to to reduce carbon emissions and yeah that does become an argument for for yeah for suicide being kind of the correct cause of action certainly like there's people who would argue there have been people who've argued but voluntary human extinction is kind of the right way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, then obviously on the basis that we as a species are always going to have an unsustainable relationship with the environment. So the best thing we can do is to eliminate ourselves, which we could 
technically freely choose to do and then leave a planet for other species uh, you know you know it's not for me like to be honest like, yeah. like, uh, my best argument against that is i don't want that yeah i don't i'm not certain i think that's right like say um with, with both of these arguments we've got to kind of try and try and do it differently like you know these yeah. are kind of all out these, these are scorched earth yeah these are arguments that assume all else has failed and in a way i want to say well all else hasn't actually failed we haven't really seriously explored our options enough. And I think where hope comes in, as you said, is like, yes. we can't prove that. We can live toward that and we can hope for that. We can desire that. Yeah. But we can't prove it. And so, you know, we're stuck at that impasse in a way. I, th I think the most of humanity probably <laughs> would side with team humanity in a way, you know, and let's see what we can do rather than the nihilism of destruction. But, you know. Yeah. I mean, people like Benatar, Schopenhauer would probably say like, well, that's irrational if you're siding with team humanity here. But like, then just, just call me irrational. That's fine. That's an irrational yeah. thing I'm kind of prepared to have. And again, like, you know, I think hope is kind of irrational in a way, right? It's never going to have a fully rational basis. Because if you were totally certain about something, you wouldn't need hope. So, well, let's define it. Yeah. Like, tell me, like, what's the most simple definition of hope as you understand it? How do you define hope? Yeah, let's, uh, I mean, let's look it up in a book. I'm gonna have a <laughs> yeah, you've got like, a whole I, book. I've remembered I have, um, do you have a, a definition of hope in a book? So hope is an attitude that agents might adopt towards the world, probably usually involuntarily, but perhaps also voluntarily which is characterized by the following two things. One, a recognition of the possibility of a better. Two, an active desire for the better to occur. So the possibility of the better, you recognize it's possible yeah. things to be better. Yeah. And you also actively desire yes. for the better things to occur. So what I wanted to rule out there is the idea that hope could just be going like, you know, well, I kind of, I'd like things to turn out better, but I'm actually not even... I have no idea how that might happen and I'm not kind of willing to pursue options that might make it happen, basically. So so I think that having children, for example, can be a hopeful act, even in like an age of sort of climate disaster. But I wouldn't say it was a hopeful act if you go like, well, I've got a genuine idea of sort of uh, parameters of a disaster here. I'm having a child anyway and I have, and who knows, maybe things will solve themselves out. That's not hopeful. That's uh, what I would call resigned you know, just resign to whatever fate is going to bring. Like you'd like a good thing to happen, yeah. but you like a thing to happen. Maybe you don't think that it will. Yeah, or like, you won't do anything. Well, or... yeah, you'd like a good thing to happen. You think maybe a good thing could happen, but you're kind of passive. You're passive in relation to that outcome. I so think what's interesting yeah. is like we can experience these different types of hope. Like we can experience resignation about so some things and then hope about other things. Yeah. In other words, I don't know that it's like a person is a hopeful person, I would have to be more specific than that, right? To say, well, they're hopeful about something in particular and they're yeah. resigned about something else or they're cynical about something else. Yeah, that's true. I think so. You know, you can try and be hopeful in all aspects of your life, but you're probably not going to manage it, right? You know, I might be hopeful about, I might have hope for my son or my daughter, but I, I don't necessarily have hope. For, you know, I might not have hope for, hypothetically, like my professional prospects or something like this. I might be resigned towards my career, but hopeful for my children. And actually being resigned towards my career might, might be a way in which I make my hope for my children active, right? If I have a kind of boring dead-end job I don't like, that's not true to life. But if I do, then I might just be doing that in order to secure a good future for my children, right? I might be resigned towards my job, but yeah, hope for my, hope for my children. Yeah, you can like act resignedly with hope for something else. Yeah, exactly. 
What about the time element? Like, does hope always have to be future facing or about the future? I mean, that's a difficult question, actually. It's a wonderful book by uh, uh, Jonathan Lear, which listeners should should uh, check out if they're interested called Radical Hope, uh, which is about, it, it's a kind of philosophy book, but it's a philosophy, it's a philosophical meditation on the sort of testimony of the autobiography of a Native American chief called Plenty Coos. And, and he's sort of like talking about the loss of, you know, his, the life of his lifestyle he lived when he was, when he was a young man. And Leah talks about the kind of hope Plenty Coos had. And Plenty Coos had hope, it's kind of future-oriented because it involves a sort of hope that one day the buffalo will return and his tribe will be able to, his people will be able to to live the life they used to. But it's also, I think Leah sort of thinks it's, it is a hope for the past. It's a hope for Maybe things could have gone differently in the past. Maybe, you know, the white man didn't destroy our lifestyle, basically. Because the hopes he has for the future are not sort of realistic ones. But there's nevertheless a kind of, and Leah thinks there's a hopefulness to the fact that Plenty Coos kept living his life even after he recognized his, the life he found meaningful was over. And that is a kind of hope for past, I suppose. I mean, and, and, and Walter Benjamin in another, as an essay I talk about in the book, um, Theses on the Philosophy of History, which Benjamin actually wrote very shortly before he was sort of murdered by proxy by the Nazis. He committed suicide, but kind of well fleeing from the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was Jewish. And he talks about sort of revolutionary action as being an attempt to redeem the past. So revolutionary political action is an attempt to redeem the past. So there, there's a kind of hope for the past again. In, in future-oriented actions, there is kind of, there can be a kind of hope for the past. Does it redeem the past? Because like seeing something bad from the past can spark change an improvement for the future. And in that way, yeah. it's not like saying, oh, I'm glad those terrible things happened. But at the very least, the silver lining to them is they could be used to spark something better. I think that's kind of what Benjamin is driving at. So he's sort of arguing against the kind of conception of history where the bad things are ultimately justified because they led to progress, right? So, okay, so it was bad. For, so, I mean, the kind of Whiggish kind of view of like colonialism or something would be, well, you know, it's kind of bad. Yeah, These it was bad to wipe land, out Native but, Americans, yeah. but now we have this great country, <laughs> yeah. et cetera, and that's great. Like Benjamin is trying to kind of philosophize about history from a perspective of the, the, the victims. And so, yeah, he, I mean, I think he, what he's trying to say is that like resistance to the powers of B, like the kind of the winners in history as a kind of hope directed towards the past because it, it's about, sort of trying to get justice for people who suffered for our history and who kind of the sort of alleged glories of the powers that be have kind of been built on the bones of. That's sort of what Benjamin thinks is going to drive revolutionary political action. So yeah, so that's a kind of hope for the past. You also talk about some bad kinds of hope. One of the things I mm-hmm. noticed was actionism you talked about yeah. as kind of a, a bad kind of hope. Talk about that for a little bit. Well, actionism is, uh, so uh, Benjamin uh, was a philosopher who was associated with the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. And one of his great kind of intellectual soulmates was Theodore Adorno. He was another philosopher associated with the Frankfurt School. Uh, Benjamin was more like a kind of uh, power academic, like he wasn't sort of, he didn't have an official job within the academy. Adorno did, but Adorno also was based in Frankfurt and he had to flee Frankfurt first for Oxford and then to New York and then Los Angeles during the Nazi period. So he was Jewish or he was of Jewish ethnicity. Um, Adorno kind of used the phrase actionism. So later on in life, Adorno kind of returned from America to West Germany 
And you know, he was someone who was on the political left. But he was very um, kind of concerned. He was so he, he obviously chose to go to West Germany or East Germany, right? Uh, which was controversial with some of his sort of more of hardline leftist friends, obviously communist East, capitalist West. Adorno was very concerned of like helping kind of set up some sort of liberal democracy in West Germany. And in the 1960s, towards the end of Adorno's life, there was a sort of very active student movement in West Germany, as there was in lots of uh, Western countries. And, a lot, and lots of the kind of leaders of this movement were Adorno students, were associated somehow with the Franklin School of Critical Theory. And Adorno thought these students were basically a kind of, he thought they were a kind of threat to democracy because he thought basically, so even though he has kind of leftist aims, he recognized those tendencies of fascism in them, in sort of like kind of these sort of student leaders' kind of hostility to debate. And in particular, their desire that something must be done, no matter what it is. So, and that's why, why I don't know, use the word actionism to describe what the kind of philosophy of uh, a student movement, because he for the basically like, okay, so they, they want this outcome, which is you want kind of justice, right? You know, you want a system in which there aren't kind of powerful people oppressing the less powerful. Okay, great. I mean, it's great, but... Their kind of Adorno's point is, you know, we're living in kind of a post-war kind of settlement. Basically, you know, we're in a kind of defeated nation. This this nation has been sort of created by effectively by kind of a nuclear settlement between the West and the East. You don't have any power to kind of change this in this into an ideal society. The best thing you can do is try and make it the least worst possible society that it can be. But you think that you're going to to make it into an ideal world, but you, you are powerless to do this. And Adorno's sort of accusation of his students almost is that like they're refusing to recognize their powerlessness in the face of the people who control the atom bomb and that they're just going to try and do anything in order to make themselves feel better about their own powerlessness. So including like violence, including violence like and like, I mean, one of their big focuses ultimately became like chasing Adorno out of university. Um, so they kind of, which they succeeded in doing, and then he had a heart attack, got stressed, and died. They kind of won that battle, but yeah, and like they kind of like they they assaulted him in his lectures and kind of chanted, "If Adorno is left in peace, capitalism will never cease." It's just kind of like it almost kind of proves Adorno's point. But like basically, this is something you can do, right? You can chase your professor out of his job, and that's going to make maybe it's going to make you feel better about yourself. It's kind of cathartic. But it's motivated by deep powerlessness and by an almost realization of your own powerlessness, because. If this is something you can do, that's a concrete action that you can do. You're not actually going to work towards any of your aims by doing it. Yeah, it's not going to stop capitalism. Exactly. It's not actually going to stop. Yeah, exactly. If Adorno is left in peace, capitalism will just be just do fine regardless. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. um, capitalism hasn't, it doesn't, doesn't care. It doesn't rhime though, Tom. Exactly, it, it doesn't, doesn't rhyme. rhyme right, enough. yeah. The only potential capitalist enterprise that would be affected by this is Verso Books. Left-wing book publishers might be affected by yeah. it. Yeah, so, and, and Adorno thought basically this kind of like actions, this attempted action, this attempted doing something, doing something to, so, to bring about a better world is in fact resign. Like I bring that into the book because obviously my definition of hope it involves not just a recognition of a possibility of a better world, but an active desire to bring about a better world. You know, the student movement in West Germany, the leaders of that movement might have seen themselves as, as hopeful, I suppose, on those grounds. Adorno says they're not because actually they sort of misrecognize how they could bring about a better world or they've misrecognized something about the possibility of a better world. And instead, they've ended up being kind of resigned to just playing silly games, ultimately violent games. Do you see those dynamics playing out today at all? I mean, that was, yeah, I mean, it's been a while, but gosh. do you see that today? 
Yeah, I mean, like they're, they're, you could, you know, all sorts of examples you could cite kind of across a political spectrum. I mean, I think you see it a lot on social media. I mean, people kind of would, groups of people on social media feel kind of atomized, powerless. If they can see, you know, you can, you have the opportunity to kind of bring someone who's more well known or turn them down and they can do it because you can, right? So, you know, uh, there might be someone who's kind of vocal on social media, but ultimately that's all they are. So then, if you discredit them on social media, yeah, there you go, you've done it. Um, makes you feel, maybe it makes you feel good about yourself a bit. It's kind of cathartic because you know you feel you've done something, but you haven't really. I mean, you know, but yeah. That sounds really resigned. <laughs> <laughs> what well, sounds resigned? My my assessment of it, of the actual yeah, just like oh, one of the, like I, I hear people complain about cancel culture, for example, right? Then, yeah. And for me, I see like formerly disempowered people have a better way to influence market forces now. So, for example, an actor does something really terrible and a movie studio maybe won't work with that actor again next time because enough people won't don't want to support that and and I see that as you know different from suppressing free speech or being fascist or anything really it's just saying we don't like what you did yeah. and I don't want to support that kind of behavior yeah, I mean, I didn't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to use the word cancel culture because I mean, it is loaded and there's all like kind of, <laughs> totally. yeah, you know, they're obviously like kind of, yeah, I mean, like in a way, there's sort of a valid kind of sort of ways of just going, I don't want to see a movie with that all in. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. that's that's fine, right? I suppose the sort of Adorno point about that would be a conflation of that almost like consumer preference, like, you know, I don't want to see something about that all in with sort of revolutionary action. So it might actually be potentially a part of like getting a better world, right? Potentially. You could argue that. Hopefully, right? yeah. But like, you know, it's a better world if Kevin Spacey isn't acting in movies anymore. Yeah. Because he does unconscionable, you know, he does, does very bad things. Yeah. Sorry. Like, but that's not revolutionary act. It's just, it, just, it exists within yeah, the parameters of the system we have because actually. But I think hopefully though, it would like prompt other people to say, this is what he did. Maybe I shouldn't do that either. So maybe there could be like broader... Yeah. You know, broader results from having someone kind of serve an example as an example, I guess. I mean, that, I mean, that is, I suppose, a kind of historically a justification for punishment. So, yeah, like. I know. And it can go, it can go really bad yeah. really quick. Too, like, I, I mean, I would also so. think, but I would, I mean, you know, in a way I would hope that, you know, you would, one would hope that you didn't need to imagine kind of your humiliating public downfall when you're kind of thinking, should, yeah. I, or should I not do the things that Kevin yeah. Spacey did? Should I or should I yeah. not abuse this person? Well, I would hate to, Yeah, like, <laughs> I would hate to not be able to act in Exactly. Yeah. So, but no, but you, yeah, maybe, 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 but to be honest, maybe there will be some sort of like, like sort of, maybe there'll be like one or two sociopaths who just check themselves and they, mm, I really would like okay. to preserve my public right. reputation. But yeah, um, I mean, but like, but like, I mean, you're right, but like, yeah, there's kind of a legitimate application of this stuff to kind of consumer preferences, but that's what it is. It's kind of almost like it's, it's a consumer preference. Yeah. That's Tom Wyman, and we're talking about the book Infinitely Full of Hope, Fatherhood, and the Future in an Age of Crisis and Disaster. So, Tom, what are some ways that we can do better at hoping? One of the things you offer in the book is that future generations obligate us to hope, right? That we, in order to make a better world, we we need to yeah. hope because we need to live better, make the planet better. There's a lot of changes that need to be made systemically so that we're obligated to hope toward the future. But how do we do better at doing that? How do you hope better? Part of why I think future generations inspire hope is because they inspire us to act beyond ourselves and beyond our sort of selfish inclinations or selfish desires. So it's almost like a way of 
I mean, it is kind of, apparently it is a kind of way of unselfing oneself. Like, you know, you're no longer just doing things because you want to do it. You're doing things because you know your kid needs it. That's significant morally. But it's not kind of enough by itself because it might just be, you know, you end up just acting in the interests of your family alone, right? Against the world. So I think, like, in a way... The experience of parenthood, it's one way in which one can help inculcate a kind of other-oriented moral behavior which would help us kind of transcend the ways in which the world wants us to act selfishly, basically. The world wants us to think we're just selfish, isolated, rational agents like Homo economicus, like who are just inclined to maximize our own selfish gain. I mean, it turns out society built on those principles is destructive and will destroy the planet and destroy the foundation to spill upon. So we need to find ways of acting less selfishly. Parenthood isn't the only way you can do that, but it's one way you can do that. And children are not the only mm-hmm. thing you can live for with like yourself. But they're one thing that exists that you can live for. That's a way of emphasizing the book is like, yeah, this is one way which is re- might be readily available <laughs> to some people, which, you know, you could be investing in the future. You can also be investing in the future in other ways. You, know, you, can ve- you can be investing in future generations as a teacher, as a godfarer, as all sorts of things. Um, you can invest- invest in the planet in all sorts of ways. You can be investing in the planet for anything beyond yourself. You can invest in a planet because you'd love a particular bird or a tree or something. For lots of people, at any rate, the experience of parenthood is going to be transformative in the appropriate way. And that's why I think parenthood can be a way to hope better. Is that what tipped the scale for you? I mean, you you had the questions when you saw that ulster sound. So there was already a baby on the way yeah. and you were thinking, was it right to do this? But now you said you've had another baby. So like yeah. what made that, what are the things that kind of helped you conclude that, oh, this this is a good thing? I think, yeah, in that argument, basically, yeah, like that argument, I mean, the argument I came up with convinced me, in all honesty, God love her, the second baby was not, entirely planned but, <laughs> okay <laughs> you know, yeah that changes the, yeah, uh, the right. equation yeah. a little bit but but we equally we were you know we were kind of thinking about it so but wait that's interesting because you guys dealt with infertility for the first baby yeah we, we we took quite a long time to conceive yeah yeah, yeah you kind of talked about that hope yeah. being dashed like you were hoping and then it wouldn't happen and you know a lot of people experienced that so yeah. that's that's interesting that the second one was a completely different experience then it was more of a surprise yeah but that's almost fair personalities kids like so my son is he's wonderful he can be he's very stubborn he can be difficult my daughter is much uh, she's also can be, I mean she can be oh, she's a baby she can be difficult but she's it's just a, she, can, she does everything really quickly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so you still have the same kind of feeling of like parenthood matters. It's a, it gives you personal fulfillment and it also turns you to think more broadly than yourself is kind of what it sounds like. So, yeah, I, I do think, I do think that to be, I would emphasize if this is a book that I wrote before, you know, I finished the book. After I'd become a parent, they, uh, I wrote most of it before I became a parent. And I think certainly with, and I also finished it, I finished it like literally just before COVID, like uh, just before the first lockdown, I submitted it to the publisher. So I would say that there are ways in which the world, certainly the way in which the family works nowadays, a way like, you know, raising children works. It does incentivize certain forms of selfishness in ways I hadn't anticipated. Mm-hmm. And you know, that can be the selfishness of thinking, well, you know, I've got to get my child into the best like right. daycare or the best school, yeah, school yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And that's part of it. Like oh, my child has to succeed more than your child. That kind of selfishness. Thinking of success as a zero sum game, which carry along across the generations. But it can also be kind of the selfishness of just thinking, 
I'm exhausted. I've been looking after kids all day. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to, you know, pay attention to whatever important thing I have to pay attention to. I, I just deserve some downtime. It's not good for maybe building the kind of base of sort of activist resistance one might imagine you'd need in order to you know, combat the climate crisis, for example. I do, I do think, you know, in a better world, those things can be mitigated through things like better childcare, you know, more investment in schools. But we don't live in that world. So... Yeah, this is where it's easy to become pessimistic. And yeah. I, I wanted to ask you is like, it's hard not to look at the scope of problems we face right now and be tempted to say, I'm just one person. And to solve this is a group project and the group is not doing good. So where do you generate hope in the face of that? I mean, COVID's a perfect example of it where we just couldn't really get collectively together enough to confront it in any meaningful way. So where do you yeah. generate hope in the face of that easy pessimism? And it's pretty easy to come by. Yeah. And I think, I mean, COVID was, was it's this very strange situation where like almost solidarity became not associating with one another. So it became very difficult for for any sort of like progressive activism to happen around COVID. And obviously we saw, we've seen lots of sort of right-wing conspiratorialism around COVID. People who are not, had no problem associating with one another because they think it's all a hoax. If you've accepted, we might make each other sick and it becomes a, a very difficult thing to get together. Uh, so that has been a challenge. Just before COVID happened, you know, the, the Labour Party in the UK had been led by sort of left-wingers. And there'd been, you know, I was hopeful that we might have a government that was going to kind of have more policies, be beneficial in the ways that I think we might have a policies that I would like. But we didn't have that. Maybe we got defeated in the general election and then COVID happened and then the Labour hierarchy shifted. And there wasn't really much sort of, you know, resistance to that because everyone was locked in their houses. There wasn't much dealing with, with that defeat because everyone was locked in their houses. And yeah, so that was really difficult. And I, I'm not, I, you know, I, I still think there's sort of like, hope in future generations and things like this but I, I struggle more now since i wrote the book to think about how one might put into practice and i i'm more kind of i understand more why so many men who've had children are sort of so grumpy and resigned to everything i sort of like i sort of i understand that sort of paternal cynicism that i think is sort of familiar from sort of older men i sort of i i worry that it's so easy just to get caught into that and just to think well, I've done my bit. I've contributed to the gene pool. Just see what these other people do. You know, it's nothing to do with me anymore. Like it's it's a problem. So I, I yeah, I, I I I'm sorry. I can't say anything more hopeful. You've written this whole book about hope, <laughs> but in the end, we found out you know that things are still really tricky. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah, that's the in a way kind of that's one take home message that I would like for readers to have from the book, like. <laughs> You know, I can't, as a philosopher, actually tell you whether or not it, it was good or bad for you to have a child. Like, in a way, you as a parent have to put that into action for yourself. So, yeah. Like, that is terrifying, mm. but it could also be beautiful. Yeah, I think this is where experience does more than any of our thought can do. Um, we sort of have to experience and live it. We can think and talk and argue and reason, but in the end, I think you're right. And, and well, this is where hope comes into it then. Like, if you hope that it's a good decision, then you live toward that hope, and that's what hope is. Yeah, and there's almost, in a way, if you want to put a kind of philosophical spin on it, you know, there's something almost like, like later Wittgensteinian about hope, like, you know, Wittgenstein tried to finish philosophy with the Tractatus, which he wrote when he was young. And then he realized the kind of perfect kind of logical system of meaning he developed from the Tractatus was just couldn't really be satisfactory to apply to real life. So you had to get to the rough ground of experience where things are uncertain and you don't really know what anyone always means. And the world is, the world does involve ambiguity. And yeah, that's why hope is an important concept. That's why hope will keep mattering. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Exactly. I like it. All right. That's Tom Wyman. And today we talked about a really fun book. Well, it's not really fun. It's just very interesting. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a lot. It, there's some heavy thought in here. Infinitely full of hope, fatherhood, and the future in an age of crisis and disaster. All right, Tom, we're going to take a quick break and come back for mm-hmm. best book recommendation. And, and that'll wrap it up. Hey, it's Blair Hodges. We'll be back with Tom Wyman in a minute, but it's time to stir the embers a little bit, keep the fire going a little bit longer, and check out some of the reviews that have come in about this season of the show. We'll start with Jake Bala 5 who says that uh, the Blair interviews such thoughtful, brilliant guests and always asks great questions. Each episode connects me to the human family and the things I learn expand my heart and mind. Thanks for that, Jake Bala 5 that, uh, That's exactly what we're aiming for here. Uh, we got a review from Desert Tortoise, who really enjoyed the Jeff Chu interview. We have five-star reviews from T.O. and uh, someone who goes by CKPKC. Uh, CS and 65 said that they just found this podcast, and in the past two days, they say, I've listened to four episodes. So that's, that's four hours in two days. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, Steph Martz says, Fireside's one of the few podcasts I listen to that I've never gotten bored of. Hey, it... Uh, and I'm, I'm not bored making it yet, so <laughs> so l- let's keep it going. I also got a really interesting note from my production assistant, Kate Davis. She does the first edit on, on the interviews, the first audio edit, and she also helps with editing the transcript. And she wrote this note to me, and here's what she had to say. I, I really liked this feedback. She says, I've been thinking a lot about this episode, which seems like a good sign. I think that Tom's explanation of Adorno would be really interesting to put in conversation with a feminist ethic of risk or survival. And Kate says, I wrote a note to myself on a post-it when I first started doing the audio that says, revolutionary acts happen within a larger system because that's all we have. Sharon Welch said that to stop fighting, even when success is impossible, is to die. And I was thinking about that quote as I edited this episode. Kate goes on to say, I think sometimes what seem like smaller fights or issues that appear to be tangential are still really part of the big fight, you know? Yes, it can be important to recognize our own relative small power in the face of overwhelming odds, but even so, even if there were no chance of winning, the fight is still important and worthwhile, and I would say it's still revolutionary. I really like that feedback. Kate, thanks for for pointing this stuff out, for bringing this up. It reminded me, I hope this isn't too cheesy, but I mean, um, I just had been watching the new Matilda musical, the film that they made, and one of my favorite songs in all the musicals is in the Matilda musical. And here's a verse from that that reminded me of everything you just said. It says, In the slip of a bolt, there's a tiny revolt, the seed of a war in the creak of a floorboard. A storm can begin with the flap of a wing. The tiniest might packs the mightiest sting. Every day starts with the tick of a clock. All escapes start with the click of a lock. If you're stuck in your story and want to get out, you don't have to cry, you don't have to shout. Because even if you're little, you can do a lot. You mustn't let a little thing like little stop you. Nobody else is going to put it right for me. Nobody but me is going to change my story. Sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Little things can make big differences. Um, Love that song. Love your thoughts. Thanks for sending that in. If you have a comment or question or or anything, you can always contact me. The email address is blair at firesidepod.org. You can also leave a comment on the website at the bottom of each episode. There's a comment section. You can post a comment on YouTube if that's where you happen to listen. We do have a few people that like to stream it there. And as always, take a second, if you haven't, to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. And I love reading all the reviews. I like seeing what you all are experiencing out there. All right, let's get back to Tom Wyman on Fireside with Blair Hodges. 
It's Fireside with Blair Hodges. We're here with Tom Wyman. And Tom, we want a best book recommendation from you. It could be something you read recently. It could be something that changed your life. Just any kind of book. What would you recommend people check out? Am I allowed to say two books? Yeah, just say two. I will say one guest said like 20. But Right, uh, it's going to be two. I think I should recommend one I read recently and I'll recommend one which comes up in, in the book. So yeah, one, which comes, okay, perfect. one which comes up in Infinitely Full of Hope, which I think people should read, is Good Morning Midnight by Gene Reese. So I, I talk about uh, Gene Reese's writings quite a bit in chapter two of the book. As if people don't know, she was a sort of, originally from the Caribbean, from Dominica, sort of from sort of a British family and uh, spent most of her life in Britain. And uh, she wrote these sort of colossally sad kind of quartet of memoirs about her sort of life as a kind of adjacent to sort of a sex worker and sort of like down and out sort of it's always down and out, but like kind of like sort of like faux respectable, but not quite kind of woman in the late twenties and and thirties. And sort of like Good Morning Midnight is the last of his books. It's about sort of this uh, woman who gets given some money by a lover and goes to Paris, and it, she's just she's just sad in Paris and uh, reflects on kind of a philosopher. Based on a kind of real experience, resad sort of based on the fact someone's a lost their child and things like this. And it's a uh, it's a really sort of wonderful and sad book. And I would, if you want to feel sad, I would recommend reading <laughs> Good Morning Midnight by Jean Reese. And okay. then later on, she's more famous writing this book called White Sargasso Sea, which is kind of like sort of ultimate sort of take on Jane Eyre. But her quartet of memoirs, memoirish fiction is wonderful. Everyone should read it better than White Star Gatsby. Okay, the, well, that's, that's number one. So yeah, for the sad one, folks out there, one. check that book yeah, out. Yeah, for the sad folks. Number two, if you want to be happier, I would recommend, so the um, best book I've read this year is uh, Mason and Dixon by Thomas Pynchon. Um, so starting from around like uh, Christmas, New Year last year, I got really, really into Pynchon. And, you know, he's, you know, if, if you're in for right mood for it, he's just, uh, you know, people can have all sorts of opinions about Pynchon, but like, He's just really funny and like Mason Dixon in particular is brilliant. Like it's sort of about the, it's about Mason Dixon who, you know, drove a titular line up and it's about the sort of heroic pointlessness and monumentousness of drawing this line across the United States basically. And sort of what does this mean? Like the kind of the limits of enlightenment and all sorts. And Dixon and Mason and Dixon are both from the UK, where I'm from, and Dixon was from the northeast of England where I live and as extended passages which are set in the town where my wife slash partner went to school and what's fascinating about this because he's talking pitching an American who knows anything about him really but you know American writer it's like before they even mentioned the name of a town, I knew where they were it's like it's absolutely fascinating like it's just he gets it so accurate in this sort of just comic novel where it almost doesn't kind of matter where it's set and but you, what you also get to accurate is like the way that everyone talks to each other. Everyone's obsessed with the minutiae of their own accents. And somehow, he's obviously spent a lot of time there in this place, Herworth, where my partner grew up. And it's insane to me. But yeah, it, it's wonderful, wonderful comic novel. And uh, yeah, if you want to feel happy with that, if you want to feel sad, we can run even late. Yeah, I haven't ever read any pensions, so I'll have okay, to add that right. to my list. Definitely read that. Definitely Mason Dixon, Against the Day. Yeah, both. Uh, those are the best ones, in my view. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Tom. You left me feeling just as ambivalent about hope as when we started, so. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, there you go. That was fair. Um, <laughs> this is your idea. <laughs> Well, thanks a lot. It was it, it was fun. I'm I'm still a hoper. I, I yeah. guess. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Good. 
Fireside with Blair Hodges is sponsored by the Howard W. Hunter Foundation, supporters of the Mormon Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University in California. It's also supported by the Dialogue Foundation, a proud part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. All right, another episode's in the books. The fire has dimmed, but the discussion continues. Join me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at PodFireside. And I'm on Facebook as well. You can leave a comment at firesidepod.org. You can also email me questions, comments, or suggestions directly. The address is Blair at firesidepod.org. And please don't forget to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. Fireside is recorded, produced, and edited by me, Blair Hodges, in Salt Lake City. Special thanks to my production assistants, Kate Davis and Camille Messick. And also thanks to Christy Franson, Matthew Bowman, and Kristen Ulrich Hodges. The opening theme song is called Great Light by Deep Sea Diver. You can check out that excellent band at thisisdeepseadiver.com. Fireside with Blair Hodges is the place to fan the flames of your curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. See you next time.